showcase the connection between human capabilities and good work design. Brought to you by the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society of Australia. Hi, I'm Sharon Todd, a certified professional ergonomist and the current president of the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society of Australia. Today, I'm chatting to Paul Cummins, the founder and CEO of Airline Training Solutions, Paul has nearly 40 years' experience in the aviation industry, working in roles that have included a pilot with the RAAF, a trainer for Qantas on Boeing 737-800, an air traffic control section safety officer, a safety engineer and safety lead on numerous projects. Paul currently specialises in training and skills development of professional pilots using flight simulators. I'm really excited to have Paul join us today as I don't know many people with an F-18 Super Hornet fighter jet simulator in their office. So, Paul, tell me a little bit about yourself and your work. Um, I'll start with my background. So I'm setting up a new business called Airline Training Solutions. Um, so it's specialising in professional pilot training, um, but also focusing on um, improvement of skills in private pilots as well. Um, so while it's targeted airlines, um, it's also keeping pilots current that may have been stood down during COVID and getting them back job ready or so they can apply for another job as well. Um, there's a little bit of crossover into military as well. And the simulators are a 737-800 Airbus 320. We've got an F-18 Super Hornet as well, which is partly where the military comes in, although they fly um, Airbus tankers and also have 737 um, for the biz jets for the PM's VIP fleet. Um, and also now the uh, coastal, no, not coastal surveillance, the, um, the Poseidon is used for the maritime surveillance and they've also got the AWACS aircraft that's also a model of the 737. So they've actually got quite a large civil contingent, civil aircraft that have been converted for military applications. Um, so my other background, so I've had... This sounds really terrible. I've had nearly 40 years in aviation. So that's how long I've been around it for. Most of it working professionally as well. Um, so I started off doing flight service and air traffic control. Um, got an aeroplane and a helicopter license. Uh, I was a trainer for Qantas, also on the 737-800, which is one of the sims that I've got. No surprises there. Um, also had a stint in health for about four years, and that's sort of still have an interest in that. Um, plus, they've also taken some learnings from aviation into the health industry as well. Um, so just a very quick run through for the rest. I've worked for the Air Force for airports, including Sydney Airport, Catherine Licensing Air Services as the editor of the pilot publication and also designing instrument approaches in and out of airports. Um, worked on air traffic control systems um, in a number of roles. Uh, system requirements as an operational specialist, verification and validation and quality assurance, and also as a safety engineer. And then other things, I've worked for um, RMIT University in flight training and been secretary of the Australian Seaplane Pilots Association. So, so you've mentioned a few interesting things there, air traffic control as well as long as, and you've also talked about health and aviation. So maybe let's talk about the evolution of human factors in aviation. 
Yeah, sure. Um, that's been really interesting because originally when you went to get a parts licence, you just flew and you got a licence. So there was no consideration of the human factors elements in the rule. Um, and often accidents were classed as being pilot error. That was a generic term for anything they couldn't put down to anything else. must have been a pilot cause in some way. Um, although, as we now know, often there's all these other little elements behind it. So the pilot was only one of the factors involved in it. Then they came up with the airlines with CRM, crew resource management. Again, that was just focusing on the pilots. It was partly done as a simulator exercise, and that was about it, with no other input. So later on, that crew concept expanded to include flight attendants. So they're actually now included in, um, well, they've changed the name of it, but essentially it's still crew resource management training that they do on a periodical basis. Um, then later on, human factors became a subject to be studied and passed in an exam, but only at the professional pilot level. So for commercial pilots and airline transport pilots, um, but there was still nothing for private pilots. Um, and also there's no retrospective requirements. So if you already had a commercial or airline licence, you didn't need to go back and do any human factors training at all. Um, later on, they casserated some other requirements for multi-crew training. So if you're going on to an aircraft operated by two crew, such as the 737 or Airbus, then you needed, well, you now need to do a specific course for that crew dynamic between the pilots. Um, then later on, CASA added human factors in for private pilots as well as an exam. For both of those groups, human factors originally was just looking at the physiology, so about the body, about the environment and other things like that. Um, it didn't cover some of the elements that are now included, such as the threat and error management um, and some of the other safety elements. And actually, the latest version that I was just looking at, some of the CASA information, human factors material, has now added design into it. So from a pilot perspective, that's really the first time that they've started to put design in. I mean, it's been around other parts of the industry in terms of um, you know, HMI, human machine interfaces and things like that. That's really what that was the only consideration that was taken into account earlier on. And I think it's still lacking in aviation in a lot of areas. Um, and the latest booklets from CASA, they've actually labelled it as safety behaviours, human factors. So they're recognising that it's, you know, you can be trained in something, but unless you put in the um, rubber to the road, so to speak, then it still isn't going to be effective. Um, and I'm just going to have a quick read of one of these two. It talks about the different models for human factors. CASA actually lists one, two, three, four. Five different models. So they're not even clear in what they want people to do. So there's the pair model, which is people, environment, actions, resources. There's PEPO, which is people, environment, equipment, procedures, organisation. And I've never heard of those, those, by the way. Then there's 5M, which is all man, people, machine, equipment, medium, their classing that is environment, mission, purpose, and management, leadership. And then the one that we do use is the shell model, which is software, hardware, environment, liveware, individual, and liveware group. And then there's another one that adds in um, a C and an O, which is for culture and organisation, which gets added into the shell model. You know, with, with all that, it's, sometimes it's where do you start, um, what's relevant, and what's Cassie going to say about it as well? Um, 
and even the, some of the terms that are in there, um, I mean, software, I sort of like to call that really systems rather than software because depending on the industry you're from, software means a certain thing. But in terms of the CASA software, they're actually referring to things like manuals and other things, whereas if and even a system can be confused as well. A system to me can be software and all those other things. Um, but we mix up terms between industries and even within aviation, some of the terms are applied in different ways depending on which part of it that you're looking at. Um, plus we use a whole bunch of acronyms that are very unique to aviation. Um, so some of those new were not familiar. And we actually use the, the terms like um, ILS. So, yes, we're using the letters, but there's some of them like, um, but there are things where we actually say the word. So, T, um, or TCAS, we say that actually is a word rather than TCAS. So, TCAS is the Traffic Collision and Avoidance System. So, you know, we've got a very um, unique environment that people are operating in. Yeah, so that possibly got a little bit off track, but um, I mean, it covers so much within, you know, what we're doing and setting up to do. And that's partly the reason why the human factors are so important. It's actually a nice segue, though, because what you've talked about is communication. So let's maybe yeah. talk about why communication is important. And you obviously mentioned a phrase, crew um, dynamics and crew management. Two parts. So the crew resource management has evolved into other things now, and it's um, the new training that's required for commercial and airline pilots where there's a two-crew operation is the multi-crew cooperation training. Um, so that was introduced because largely if you got into something like a 737, you're used to flying a little Cessna or something around, you know, maybe a nine-seater, um, but it was always with one pilot. So suddenly, well, and I guess the other example that's really relevant is somebody like a fighter pilot. They're flying, you know, multi-million dollar aircraft, um, performs very similarly to, you know, 737 or something like that in general terms, but they would be put into their typewriting and they're used to flying a really complex piece of kit by themselves and they would often almost do everything themselves and not uh, interact with the other pilot. Um, Plus culturally within some organisations and some countries years back, the captain was effectively the, the master of the ship, so to speak. The first officer was often there almost just to fit it radio, as we call it, so where the captain wouldn't take input from the first officer and that in itself has led to accidents at times. Um, so that's the background to why this training actually came into being. Um, and, you know, with what I was training at Qantas, it was really important that the crew have the uh, communication, understand what's happening um, because there may be a little piece of the puzzle in terms of um, either in normal operation or an emergency situation where the captains miss something. You know, you're under stress and pressure and it's really important to um, be able to gather all the information and even some of the training, you know, ring down to the flight attendant and ask them what's happening because there might be something happening in the back of the aircraft that you don't know of. So to involve everyone in the communication and um, also attention is really important. So what you've talked about is um, is multi-crew and then you've started to talk about communication and you also sort of went in the direction of probably some non-technical skills sort of training or problems in the cockpit. 
Um, let's just talk about uh, more about communication for a second. So in terms of human factors communication, what is important when you're working, I mean, you're training in the simulator. So what is important in the simulator? Really an awareness of knowing what's going on and also knowing when the other person doesn't know something. So when does the communication fail? When's it working? When's it not working? Um, also different types of communication, which can come down to, you know, we've got different ways of learning and we've also got different ways of communicating. And sometimes it's easy for personalities not to align. So the consistency between the training and knowing what each part, party is doing, but then also being able to communicate with the person. You know, if somebody misses something, you need to pick them up, um, but in a way that doesn't feel confrontational. I mean, everybody gets tired at times and things like that, and it is easy to potentially miss something. And But also the other side of it is also using checklists and knowing how to improve the communication between the pilots as well. That's the other side of it. Um, how to manage their personality to a point, um, but understanding. I mean, I'll just give you one example. In the um, 737, it has a head-up display, very similar to what a fighter jet has, but it's only on the captain's side in the 737. You can fly really accurately with that. Um, down to, you know, basically really low minima in the aircraft. Um, the first officer just has an old-style gauge, which the captain has as well, but he's focused on this head-up display looking through the outside of the window. And we say you've got to give the um, first officer, it's not a tolerance for error, but you need to not be too hard on them because if you look across at the first officer's gauge, the needles are actually crossed and he's flying perfectly down. But if you look at the captain's gauge, it's double the sensitivity and double the size. So any tiny little movement on the captain's, I mean, he can pick up. But on the first officer's gauges, you know, the crosses are aligned and he's doing a really good job. Um, so, and we actually teach that because from a human factors error, you know, a perspective, if he's, you know, telling the first officer, you know, you're not flying it accurately. He's got to remember the equipment that he's using and um, what the captain has of his vision that the first officer doesn't have as well. So why isn't it the same on the first officer's side? That is just the design of the cabin? It is. The head-up display is um, it's an option. So not all airlines take it up. Um, the Qantas aircraft all have them on the 737s. Um, more modern designed aircraft like the 787 it's not an option it's actually standard on both sides so you can't order a 787 now without a head-up display it's just there so let's go back a step what do you actually do in a simulator with um the pilots and I guess there's a difference between whether it's a, a person starting out or whether it's an experienced pilot so maybe let's start with a new pilot someone who's learning to be a pilot what are the priorities for you and where does human factors fit into that? Yeah, um, we're only dealing with pilots that have got experience to start with, so we're not teaching a basic pilot from scratch. Um, I mean, I have done that in the past, but that's not what we're doing now. So these pilots have all got at least a, a commercial licence um, or a fair amount of experience or an airline transport pilot's licence. And it also depends on the type of well, why they're coming in. Are they doing it because they need to learn their craft? Are they coming back to do a refresher or a currency, or are they doing a multi-crew cooperation course? And that's probably the closest to the basics. It'll be commercial pilots um, who hasn't flown a big aircraft, 
it's going to go onto the 737 or Airbus, something like that. It's a little bit different because the motor crew course is a short course and it is predominantly based on human factors. So they're not assessed on flying skills. We want them to know enough about the aircraft so they can generally do things, but we also want them to make mistakes and then see how they're going to react to those mistakes, what they're going to do with it, um, and how you know what the dynamic is like. And I'll just give you an example from my own experience. Um, I did a type rating on the 727, which is an older aircraft now, but I had to go to the US for that. And one of the um, simulator sessions we do is, so the 727 has three engines. Um, so we, we're doing two engine failures, a double engine failure on takeoff. First one, just as you're lifting off the runway, second one at 500 feet. Now, if you're below a certain speed, the aircraft just won't fly. You've actually got to get the speed up, otherwise you're just going to mush into the ground or ocean as we were over and it's all over. Um, I'd read the handling notes. The co-pilot hadn't. So we get to 500 feet. I'm down to one engine. This is after takeoff. I know that we're over the water, so there's nothing below. Um, and we're below our climb speed for a single engine. So the only way to get that is to nose the aircraft over and go down. So from 500 feet, you don't have much room. Yep. So pushing the nose over and the first officer saying pull up, pull up. And I know that that's not going to work because if we do that, we're going to hit the ground. So I was dealing with his voice in my, you know, coming across at me and doing what I knew had to be done. And I didn't have time to argue with him or do, I just needed to do what had to be done. So that was a situation um, where, you know, it could have been a miscommunication if I had followed what he thought, then it would have wouldn't have been a good outcome. Um, and basically we got down to 200 feet before I got the speed and then nosed it up and climbed away. So, you know, and then later on that, the um, instructor froze the session and we had a debrief on it there and then. Um, but those are the sort of things that we also want to pick up and see what happens in the modern crew training that we're doing as well. Um, that's, that's a fairly unique situation to be in. Yeah, that's a scary situation to be in, even in a simulator, I'm sure. Because there's also a nighttime scenario <laughs> you can't see. Other than, you know the height on the, um, you've got an altimeter. So I knew that, you know, basically it was down to sea level that's as far as we were going. Um, but, yeah, trying to manage speed and height is really critical in any um, aircraft operation as well, but particularly with one engine. You know, two engines out and only one remaining. So the... Communication then between the two of you, you've you've mentioned that there's not enough time then to obviously have a bit of a discussion about it because there's quick decisions that need to be made. How do you teach situational awareness or is this a, a, a different scenario at that time? Yeah, that was a bit of a different scenario because we're in a training environment where they are doing things differently. I mean, we knew it was coming. It was brief. That's what we're going to do. Um, but I guess, you know, my level of preparation was to study and to read the manual and see what was required, whereas, unfortunately, the, the other guy hadn't. Um, but in terms of the situational awareness, it's really hard to teach that sort of thing. Um, so the situational awareness is knowing what's happening around you, you know, almost like a, a Jedi. It's just the force almost. Um, so, you know, you know, you're listening to radios while you're doing other things. Um, and I guess I'm lucky in that I've had an air traffic control background, so 
you know, I'm used to listening to, you know, maybe eight or ten other aircraft and pushing them around the sky, so to speak, whereas the pilot has only been brought up with dealing with his one aircraft and what's happening and maybe what's going to affect him in the next few minutes. So sometimes, you know, they'll struggle to know what's going on. So situational awareness is the professionalism and it's just experience in a lot of ways to do it. So if we can teach all the things that they need, then they'll develop it. I mean, some it's like, I guess, you know, playing a board game. The more experience you've got and the more you do it, the more you're going to understand it and the rules and how to apply it and how to win the game. So you've got experienced pilots. So when this happened with an experienced pilot, that communication would have been very difficult, wouldn't it, if you tried to verbally communicate that? So obviously you've indicated that you've just taken uh, charge and taken over the flight of the aircraft. What was the discussion like after that? So obviously this, you, I think you said that it was aborted, the session was aborted. Um, what, what was the communication like after that? I'm just wondering how that went. Um, yeah, it was. It wasn't a board in the simulator. You've got the ability to freeze the session, so you just it is effectively is a flat freeze. So um, you're suspended in midair, so to speak, and you can debrief, talk about it, and then just hit unfreeze, and it continues on. Um, so the discussion was around the procedure, and so he realised that what I'd done was actually the correct procedure, and then we had to swap seats and he had to run it again. So he knew what was then going to happen and had the benefit of that. Whereas if he had been first, then I'm sure we would have been on the water because he would have tried to pull up, not had the speed, and we would have um, not had the flying performance. Um, it doesn't matter how much power you put on. If you can't get your speed and you're behind on the drag, then you will end up not flying. So, And it was a training environment as well. So we didn't have the, um, you know, there was... It was learning, so there was no pressure in terms of um, him having made a bad call and the fact that I made the good call, then that was the most important thing for the outcome for that. Um, and, again, it's being prepared and having the awareness, um, and that's the sort of thing that in some of our training we want to happen as well. So we don't mind that this mistake's been made, but it's how you recover from them is what's really important. You mentioned something about you can go around again. So the simulator is recording the scenario. Is this correct? And then you fly the same thing over again. Is that what happens? Uh, no, no, we didn't actually need to fly it again because I did the the whole thing correctly. Um, I mean, we would have he could have repositioned this back onto the runway and done it again if he wanted, um, but there was no need to in this case. Um, there are ways. Some of it can be recorded and played back. Depends on the type of simulator and things like that as well. Uh, you can either capture the data or you, sometimes you can capture the actual flight and get it to actually play back and sit in it and just watch what it's done the whole time as well. Yeah, there wasn't a safety outcome from it. It was just a learning for the co-pilot. Um, so I was actually flying at the time. So as I said, I just ignored what he was saying. I said, no, I'm right. And that was about it. He kept saying, no, pull up, pull up. Um, but at that stage, I just had to concentrate on the flying. Yeah, I wasn't trying to take anything away from him, so to speak. I didn't want to make him feel bad, but, you know, you've only got 400 feet above the water and hitting terrain, so to speak, um, and that was my priority. My focus at the time was making sure we didn't. So, that, again, that came into situational awareness, I guess, is knowing the procedure, knowing how much space we had to play with, 
Um, I was also aware of not to push the nose too far down so we didn't have too great a sink rate. Um, but the 727 is fairly slippery aircraft, as we call it, so, you know, it will accelerate fairly well. What do you think it's for or how do you use non-technical skills training and then is it distracting for you? What happens in the training environment rather than the aircraft, you're not going to sit down and say, okay, we should be doing this or this or this. Um, you, the skill is actually in learning what needs to happen and how to apply it. So, and it becomes a philosophy in the way the, the airline, the way the airline operates, using the correct procedures, you know, the checklist, um, knowing what all the things are that need to be done, both in normal and emergency. Airlines often call it non-normal procedures. So that can be running a checklist you don't normally do, or it could be an emergency type checklist as well, ranging from something minor up to something where you need to have the recall. So some checklists need to be done partly from memory. So things like engine failures, you don't have time to pull out a checklist on those. Pressurisation drops in cabin altitude, we need to run an emergency descent procedure and things like that. The first uh, probably 14 or 15 items on that are memory recall items, so they need to be able to be just rattled off straight away. Then once you're down to the safe place, you can then bring out the checklist and you rerun it to make sure that you haven't um, missed anything. So that's the value of the checklist, even in those situations. Do you have much input into some of these checklists at any point in time? Do you um, are the human factors aspects of evaluation of these checklists? Do you know? The, the checklists are generally done by the airline themselves or Boeing, so whoever the manufacturer is. So the airlines have a little bit of latitude, but they will submit sometimes based on experience, but because you know, 737s used worldwide, um, you know, Boeing will come back with no technical objection. So they don't say you can or can't. They just say we can't technically think of any reason why you can't. Uh, so that's as close as they'll give to an approval. And beyond that, then it's on the airline. Um, in terms of what I'm doing for some of my training, it's a different philosophy to a point in that um, – so with the airline training, they will actually learn the checklist and run through it all. And because they have they only have such a limited time in the courses that I'm running, they're only five to seven days. So they'll have a modified checklist that they will run through. And that's one that I'll put in to make sure it covers the essential items. Because there are things that you do in a procedural flow that actually aren't covered by a checklist. The checklist will I'm sort of paraphrasing a little bit, but they really only look the things that will hurt if you get them wrong. So if you don't put the wheels down when you're landing, so that will be in a checklist item. But there might be something else that isn't covered, but you need to do like change the air conditioning or something like that um, in, as an example, on takeoff, things like that. But then making sure the air conditioning is back on after you take off is in the checklist, things like that. So what are some of the challenges for you working as a trainer uh, in a simulator with other pilots? The level of experience often coming through, uh, even with a major airline, there'll be people that are coming off another aircraft. It'll be They might have been a second officer on, say, the 787, and they're coming across to be a first officer on the 737, or they've been a first officer on another type, and then they're coming to the 737 as a captain. Or they might be coming in, we used to train Jet Connect. I think they might be doing their own training now, but that was a subsidiary that was based in New Zealand. So their pilots will come out of light aircraft, often only flying single engine, 
into the 737 straight off as the first officer um, because they don't have you know, the second officer type route. They're only doing essentially New Zealand and Pacific to Australia, that's all. So it's a different way of training. Um, they don't have the experience with the that have never been in the airline before as well. So they've got to learn the aircraft type, they've got to learn the Qantas procedures. Um, and I can really identify with them because when I came in to Qantas to train on the 737, I'd never flown for Qantas before. They brought me in as a trainer because I'd flown Boeing aircraft. Um, so I had to go through as a student first off. Then I had to learn to train the Qantas way. I had to learn the Qantas procedures. So I was, you know, in the same, um, I guess, pool as they were in having to learn all those things, whereas guys that had been with Qantas for, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, they already knew the procedures, so they only had to focus on the aircraft, and that was it. So when I got students from Jet Connect, you know, I really understood how hard it was for them. So I guess from a instructor perspective, I had more empathy for them because the other guy that trained with me, he'd been with Qantas for uh, quite a long time. He actually worked for Qantas a couple of times, so you know he breezed through his training, whereas mine was a bit longer because I had a lot more to learn. So how does human factors or how has human factors um, helped you with some of the challenges that you face as a pilot? Uh, there's a, a few things uh, and something that's just come up recently. So with the um, 737, they have physical control yokes and they're connected. So, you know, if the captain's turning it, the first officer can see it and if he has a hand, hand there, he can feel it. The rudder pedals are connected. You know, the, that ta- either tactile or visual awareness is there. With the Airbus, it's completely different. They have a side stick that's like a, a joystick games controller on each side. So they're on the outside as well, so you can't even see really what the other person is doing. So whether they're doing something wrong or putting wrong input or whether it's wind, you don't know. Um, but I actually saw an article yesterday where Airbus have introduced... Oh, and the other thing is once you said it, it doesn't move. Um, it's almost like a constant autopilot. So as soon as you turn... If you don't do anything, the aircraft will continue to do it. Um, and it's also fly-by-wire, so there's no tactile feedback as well. Um, but the article yesterday, Airbus have actually introduced a, a side stick that will move on the other side. So they've somehow connected it electronically so it will mirror what's happening on the side. So a training or check captain could monitor the first officer and think, oh, he's actually going to you know, flare to later, it's going to be a hard landing. So he can take over or provide an input, which is what should be able to happen. Um, but that's, yeah, I just don't know what accidents have actually been caused by it, but I would think there's probably been a few debriefs at the end of it um, where there's been a, something with a hard landing or some wind or crosswind that wasn't handled well. But for Boeing, I mean, mostly it's been cables and pulleys down the back, so you can actually feel what's happening. You have interconnected controls. Um, and it's also one of the reasons why I would rather fly a Boeing than an Airbus. I mean, from a pilot perspective, uh, it's a very different design philosophy. So you're, are you talking about tactile feedback? You get some element of feedback because of the pulley system, whereas the more electronic system removes that. Yeah, essentially the Airbus has a computer at the front talking to a computer at the back that then controls the hydraulics and things, whereas the, um, well, at least the Boeing, not so much the 787, I think it's fly-by-wire, 
but the others, um, you have pulleys and cables and hydraulics to assist, but you can actually feel. So the faster you go, there's more weight on the controls and things like that. Um, I think some aircraft have actually introduced that artificially. I think they have for the 787. But just being able to feel what's actually happening through the controls from a pilot perspective is important. Um, I mean, even where the loading of the aircraft is, for example, um, there's a bit of a weight range where the centre of gravity once you've loaded an aircraft. And if it's a forward centre of gravity, you've actually got to apply more force to rotate and lift off the ground. Whereas if it's an aft centre of gravity, it'll actually come off more easily, which could mean that you end up with a tail strike because you put the same amount of force and it comes up faster on the tail hits the ground. Um, you know, that only... I have never had a tail strike, but I've had one where it came off very easily and I thought, I've got to check, you know, in my own mind and be more aware of where that centre of gravity is um, because it would be so easy to, you know, potentially have a tail strike or something. So if it's more electronic in its control and you don't have that feedback, what are you relying on to give you the information? Um, you're right, relying on the um, the flight directors and the information in front of you to actually determine how far up you're pitching. Um, but the initial rotation, you're actually looking outside and then you're coming onto it as you lift off the runway. So there's, you know, a transition period between the two. So how do you manage vigilance? And I'm thinking probably long flights, you've got to be vigilant all the time, but how do you manage that when there's so much to monitor and you're also, you know, watching what the other person's doing as well? Well, once you're in cruise with autopilots on and things like that, then it's you have a pilot flying and the other one's called pilot monitoring and they switch roles or switch um, sector by sector. So there'll be one pilot flying and it may not be the captain because both pilots sitting in the seat are qualified to actually completely fly the aircraft. Um, there are some conditions under which the captain has to land you know, if it exceeds the crosswind limits for a first officer or things like that. Um, but I think even Qantas were changing some of that, so providing the first officer had experience, they could do it. But on the long flights, yeah, there's occasions where you'd be sitting there and you might be you'll be chatting, eating. You know, night flights across from Auckland used to be not only tiring, but you know, I'd go through and read maybe part of a manual or something like that, or. Um, you know, if you weren't, the, if you're pilot flying, then you needed to be, you know, more focused on it. Whereas the other pilot, you know, may potentially actually be browsing through a book or something like that. Um, yeah. you, I mean, you have alarms and you have things that will alert you to a problem. You know, part of the crew dynamic is also how you relate to people in the cockpit. Um, pilots for some of the airlines are picked as much on their people skills as their flying skills because. If you're on a you know 17 hour flight or whatever it is across to London from Perth, then the last thing you want is somebody that um, you know to have that crew dynamic. It actually helps overall as well. So it's a, it's also a flatter cockpit gradient. So you know captains will ask for input. Certainly the way Qantas would train it was that um, well it used to be if there was an emergency years ago, the first officer would hold a hand out of the captain to fly. And then the first officer would run the checklist or the co-pilot would run the checklist. Um, but there are problems with that in terms of the captain's not fully aware of what's going on. The first officer had the inputs for whatever was needed. Um, so, and I'm glad that the airlines have adopted it. 
so the pilot who's flying will continue to fly and then, you know, the other pilot, even if it's the captain, will then run the checklist and go through the procedures. Uh, and there may be times where you do need to hand over because some of the controls and switches in the upper panel, they're really hard to reach from one side. So, you know, it's a stretch. You've actually got to almost reach across the other person to do some of it, things like that. And, again, that's ergonomics, but also from old um, designs that are legacy systems as well. Or is there an example you can think of where the alarms in the cockpit have either not been very salient or they've just blended into the background for you or circumstances where you think human factors could have improved how something was designed? Um, Not so much in the design, but I've had it happen with students where there's different types of systems in the 737. So if something is visually right in front of you, um, it won't bring up what we call master caution, which is a light um, that alerts you that there's something happening with the systems. So if it's on the overhead panel, and you can see just above my head on the, the background there, there's above the window, there's all those lights. So that's not in your field of view, so to speak. So if something went off there or a system was malfunctioning or something tripped off, um, the yellow light on the panel directly in front of you will start to flash. So that's, and then you'll also get another light that will tell you which system it actually is or which panel to look at, so to speak. Um, so you'll see the light, you'll look and see what it is, and then you'll acknowledge that and you'll look up and see what it is and deal with it at the time. There's some other systems that technically are right in front of you and um, part of the training we would fail systems during their pre-flight setup and uh, they'd come to do something later on and they'd realise something wasn't working and they'd say, oh, that's failed. And I'd say, how long has it been there for? And they wouldn't know. It might have been there for half an hour because it wasn't directly in the field of view. They only did that once and then they would check it in the future. Um, but to me, that was a, a good learning experience. I wouldn't point it out and say, how hey, I've put it there. I'd let it run you know, as far as it needed to go for them to pick it up and then to deal with it from there. Um, and sometimes those learning outcomes, um, I've deviated from syllabuses occasionally, but I've always been able to justify it, including even when I did my check with Qantas as an instructor, I needed to do something that was a bit different. Um, I didn't explain it during the, um, the session, but I explained it to the checker at the end of it and said, this is the reason why I deviated from it. I said, good call. So um, I didn't miss anything, but there were learning outcomes to be done from allowing things to just go a little bit differently. And it also depends on the experience of the crew that you're working with as well. Um, so, you know, some crew need to be challenged a little bit more than others in things at times. Let's talk about the difference in switching. Are there differences in the switching? Uh, yeah, there are. I mean, even within the aircraft itself, there's some. Some are push buttons. Most of the Boeing are actually switches that you'll um, move. Airbus philosophy generally is that it's a push button. Um, but sometimes, you know, when you push a button, you're not actually sure whether you push it far enough to engage it or do things like that. Whereas with Boeing, you've actually got to move a switch. And some of them have even got um, like a ridge in the middle. So you need to actually physically pull it out and over that ridge and down. So it's a definite movement. So there's no doubt that it's been done. I haven't flown an Airbus. So you know, I'm not the best person to comment on that. But to me, the physical movement of a switch 
been how it's been done. Um, so occasionally with things, I mean, there are a few push buttons on the um, on the seven three seven. Um, part of the cargo fire system suppression system is a push button, and you know the number of times somebody's actually pushed the arm button, you know they've gone to activate it, and I've looked down it, and they haven't actually pushed it enough to actually arm it, and then they've had to go back and push it again. Um, yes, that's a stressful situation because they're dealing with an emergency, and even though it's simulator. You know, they know that if they don't get it out in a certain time, that instructor's going to let it go into a fire or something like that. So they need to to deal with it. Um, but that, yeah, that switching is a very different design philosophy. Um, the panels in the overhead on the 737 essentially move the flight engineers switching from the um, behind the co pilot onto the overhead panel. So even the 737, we which is a later generation aircraft, is still almost a legacy design from the 707 and the 727. So there hasn't been many changes from that. Okay. Actually, something I will mention is people's experience in simulators. So simulators haven't been used very much in Australia, particularly at the light aircraft level. Um, so the general aviation, as we call it, which is a single engine and small twin engine pipers that your average pilot will fly on a weekend. Um, and... I probably didn't quite realise how significant that difference was until I had somebody coming to one of my simulators, the light across simulator. You know, she was a qualified pilot and, you know, while we're taking off, she got distracted with something. So it started to veer off the heading and, you know, the stall warning actually went off. I mean, yes, I was doing things and having a discussion, um, but I realised I hadn't actually given her a full brief and part of the brief is we treat this like the real aircraft. So you must fly it the way you fly the aircraft. So don't get, you know, that means don't get distracted by things. Focus on what you need to do. You know, look at your airspeed and your numbers and what's happening. Um, so that was a good learning for me. I mean, it was only a, a session, you know, designed to just give her a little bit of experience in a simulator type thing. Uh, but I, I realised that, you know, my part as an instructor was to, and it's the first time she's sort of been in a, a simulator like that was to give, you know, a proper briefing background, even for somebody that's just in it to um, get a little bit of experience, not doing a formal course or things like that as well. Actually, that's one of the things that I thought would be a problem because it because it's not the real aircraft, you know, you just haven't, you know, walked down the, the air bridge and crossed and waved at all the passengers and <laughs> climbed in. It would be, I think it would be quite easy to uh, think it's a game and, and think it's not, a sim, you know, that it's not real. So that's really important, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But that actually isn't the case. If you have a look behind me, that's actually the same as what a Qantas aircraft, Qantas 737-800 is. So a Qantas pilot stepping into this, number one, they know that, you know, all the training material talks about treating the simulator like a real aircraft. Generally, they know they're being assessed. Um but the other side of it is that's, you know, from my experience, stepping into a simulator is that um, it looks like the real aircraft. It flies like the real aircraft. As soon as you're in it, you actually forget that you're in a simulator pretty much. You are flying it as though it's the real aircraft. Does it have all the noise that a plane has? It does. As you're running down the runway, you can hear the nose wheel hitting the runway lights. Um, you can hear the rumble of the tyres, you can hear the engines. Yeah, so all the warnings and things sound the same as they do in the real aircraft. Um, if you get into a, 
a stool or a stick shaker type situation, you can hear the clacker going off. So it's all there, yeah. Thanks for joining us at the Human Factors and Ergonomics Hub, brought to you by the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society of Australia, where human-centred design really matters. If you like this podcast, make us your favourite in your podcast app. We look forward to chatting with you next time. Thank you.